It's the year 2000, and 36-year-old Eddie Rama has just been elected mayor of Tirana, the capital of Albania. He's not a politician. It's the first time he's been elected to anything. On his walk to City Hall, he passes mazes of illegal kiosks where city parks used to be. He steps around heaps of uncollected trash, rotten food, broken furniture, who knows what else. Tirana has run out of money. Most depressing of all, everything is gray. Under communist rule, Tirana tore down its Turkish baths and bazaars and erected endless rows of Soviet-style apartment buildings. They're boxy and drab, and Rama can't help but think that they match the city's mood. Sure, the Iron Curtain may have been lifted, but life in Tirana is gloomier than ever. As mayor, it's his job to set things right. He has little experience and no funds to work with. But he does have one trick up his sleeve. He has an eye for color. In a TED Talk, Rama told the audience, In my previous life, I was an artist. I still paint. I love art. I love the joy that color can give to our lives. So Rama turns to what he knows best. He chooses a building in the heart of town and has it painted a radiant, sun-kissed shade of orange. He wants to signal from the get-go that his tenure in office will be different. At first, the sudden appearance of color causes traffic jams. Do people love it, hate it? It's hard to tell. Mostly they're just shocked. So Rama makes a poll for the residents of Tirana with just two questions. First question, what do you think of the color? Do you like it? The second, do you want it to stop? To the first question, 63% of people said, yes, we like it. 37 said, no, we don't like it. But to the second question, half of them that didn't like it, they wanted it to continue. So Rama paints more buildings, and he adds more colors to his palette. Lime green, cherry red, neon yellow. The colors spread across the once gray city, and as they do, the people's mood begins to brighten. Big noise raised up. What is this? What is happening? What colors are doing to us? Citizens tell him they feel energized, more connected to their city. They stop littering. They start going out more often. Cafes and restaurants spill into the streets. Over the next five years, the trend continues. The number of businesses in Tirana triples. Tax revenue increases six times over. There's now money for public development projects like planting trees and tearing down illegal buildings. By 2005, Tirana is hardly Disneyland, but it's a dramatically different city. And when Mayor Rama looks back on the changes, he can't shake the image of that one orange building, the spark that started it all. That first splash of joy on a barren landscape. Designer Ingrid Fatelli has thought a lot about joy, both as a feeling and as a science. And in her new book, Joyful, she makes the case for how a single coat of paint can transform a city. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This time, 
joy, where it comes from, and how we can get more of it into our lives. Conventional thinking is that real joy comes from within. It comes from a sunny disposition or from exercise or meditation. It comes from how we look at the world and our place in it. We all know what it doesn't come from, material possessions, new clothes, expensive jewelry. And it doesn't come from fleeting pleasures like manicures or fresh-cut flowers. Real joy is deep. It has nothing to do with surface things. Ingrid Fatale-Lee says we couldn't be more wrong. As a former design director at the global innovation firm, IDEO, Ingrid has spent her career figuring out how to design objects and spaces and experiences that deliver joy. She shares what she's learned in her book, Joyful, the surprising power of ordinary things to create extraordinary happiness. She breaks it down for Next Big Idea Club curator Adam Grant in front of a live audience at the Wharton School of Business where Adam teaches. So Ingrid, I want to start, I guess, at the beginning for me, which is uh, a few years ago, I went to IDEO and gave a talk kind of sitting like this. And you came up afterward, and you told me about a blog that you were writing, which I just found riveting. Uh, I think it was called The Aesthetics of Joy. Mm -hmm. So how did you get started as a blogger, and what was that, and how did you make time for it outside of your day job, and nine other questions that I'll ask you in a minute. <laughs> oh boy, okay, okay. So I fell into blogging by accident. I started... I was studying at Pratt. I was studying industrial design. And I had this review where a professor um, looked at my work and he said it felt joyful to him. It made him feel joy. And I, and this was really weird to me because I had, you know, I had always thought of joy as this ephemeral thing. And so when this professor said this, I, it began this sort of process of inquiry for me where I started to try to, you know, the professors in the moment couldn't answer the question. And so then I set out to try to answer this question for myself. I actually, I think, started a blog to sort of chronicle all my design explorations, all of what I was learning. And I quickly found that this question became the only thing I wanted to write about. And so I started another blog. So I, I had an initial blog, it was called Sketchbook, and it was just like where I scribbled things. And then I thought, you know, I keep asking these questions about the aesthetics of joy. I, at that point, had sort of figured out that that's what I was calling it. And so I just moved all those posts over to this new blog, and that was where I spent all my time. And I just kept finding examples and finding stories, and that was how it began. So it's really weird for a professor to say that any work anyone does gives them joy. But, <laughs> but it happened in your case. What was it about your work? Was your professor actually able to identify the sources, or was that part of the puzzle for no, you? No, that was part of the problem, is that they just said, you know, it's a lot of hand waving. I mean, designers love to wave their hands. That's, like, how we communicate. Um, we communicate in, like, scribbles and also, like, by waving our hands around. It's a very intuitive discipline. I think that's one of the problems with design, is that it is very intuitive. And so for me, I really wanted to understand where this came from, like what was the source of it? And I have to say, so my, my dad is here tonight, and I, um, my dad's a, a neurologist, and I grew up with two doctors as parents. And so I think for me, science was always a part of my upbringing. I'm very sorry. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of jargon at the dinner table, you know, there was a lot of, um, but, but I think as a result, I really wanted to understand the why. And in design school, there's not a lot of why. There's just a lot of it's really about 
the what and, and how it makes people feel. People really care, like designers really care about that, but they don't often, there isn't a bridge between the people who are studying objects and how they make us feel and what's happening in our minds when we encounter things. And so for me, it was this question of how do I bridge that gap and how do I actually bring some of what scientists are discovering into the practice of design? And so, for a while at least, you're, you're doing the blog on the side, and you're doing yeah. design work full time. For a really long time, How actually. Long? Uh, so, I started the blog in 2009, and I finished my master's at the end of that year at Pratt, and then I went to work for IDEO that same, I started in 2010 at IDEO in January, and I was working on the blog on the side for six years while I was at IDEO. Sometimes with vigor and sometimes not as, you know, sometimes you get caught up in the day to day, but it was always there for me. And I think having it became this thread. And also some of the early, you know, having it become known by people early on in the design field made it easy to always come back to because people thought of me as, you know, the aesthetics of Joy Girl. So I want to talk about how, how you actually create joy or find yeah. it. I feel like I meet a lot of kind of aspiring authors where they explain their ideas. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of related to something that's already been done, or maybe that could work. And you were in a, a category of your own, which was you started talking about the aesthetics of joy. And I was like, this is, one, this is a book. Two, this is an idea that I have not seen anyone write about, which is that I always thought joy came from the inside or from our interactions. And you're like, no, it's actually designed all around you. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, as somebody who's completely artistically clueless, I would like to know more about this. <laughs> At minimum, I would like to one day go to a museum and feel some joy. Mm. Um, and so I, I'd love to, to hear, for starters, what are some of the key principles of designing an environment that is joyful? And are we sitting in one right now? Um, okay, so uh, <laughs> let me back up and talk a little bit about the aesthetics of joy and how this all came about. So once I started to explore this question of how do things create joy, because I had the same biases that, you know, it's internal, and especially I think as a culture we're told that our stuff is supposed to be incidental and that we should be able to be happy anywhere, that we should be able to turn inward and be able to find our sort of inner paradise wherever we go and we should be able to tune out whatever stuff is in our environment that might be annoying or draining or whatever, that we should be able to rise above that, right? And so as I started to explore this, I started asking people about the things that brought them joy. I started to notice that there were certain patterns, visual patterns um, and sensorial patterns. We see bright color in festivals. If you go anywhere in the world, you go to a festival, you see bright color. And if you try to imagine that festival, and you take all the decorations and you make them like black and gray, you turn them into monochrome, like something's missing, right? So that seemed to be like one of these aesthetics of joy. And then nature, you know, we find so much joy in nature. And so that was another. So I started noticing all these features and that's what became the aesthetics of joy. It was like having a decoder ring for joy, for these things that spark joy within us. So uh, I've mentioned a few, bright color is one. And what I thought was interesting was when I started to research these specific aesthetics, I started to find you know, insights that showed, studies that showed that they influence our performance and our well-being. And so, for example, you know, studies that show that bright color in work environments makes people more alert, friendly, confident, joyful, interested. Like that's a, you know, that's something that means that this isn't just an idle pleasure, but it actually influences our functioning. Ingrid also began talking to neurologists and evolutionary psychologists about how joy works in the brain and how it got that way. Okay, science shows that bright colors make us happy, but can you tell me why? 
With their help, she began to understand how one orange building could flip the switch on an entire city's mood. 25 million years ago, our primate ancestors were nocturnal and colorblind. But then a particularly courageous band of monkeys ventured out into the daylight. During the daytime, color could relay important information about where to find food. Red leaves were younger and more nutritious than green leaves. Saturated colors indicated riper, more sugar-dense fruits. Over time, when some monkeys developed the ability to see colors, they basically gained superpowers. Their selective advantage was secured. And those monkeys eventually became us. As humans, our color vision is still, basically, a heat map for nutrition. Once Ingrid understood this, Tirana's transformation suddenly made sense. Of course, an orange building is inedible, but bright colors still register as yummy food and ping our reward circuit. Colorless landscapes trigger a sense of scarcity. They put us on edge. But colorful landscapes let us relax. They offer us a sense of security, like we found ourselves a little slice of the savanna that can feed our family. And so when nursing homes add colorful accents to interior spaces, residents are happier and their visitors stick around longer. When high schools are painted with bright colors, students feel safer. They don't skip school as much and they don't cover the walls with graffiti. In his TED Talk, Tirana's mayor, Eddie Rama, said he saw the power of color when he caught a shopkeeper removing his storefront's metal grates. One day, I remember walking along a street that had just been colored and where we were in the process of planting trees. When I saw a shopkeeper and his wife putting a glass facade to the shop, they had thrown the old shutter in the garbage collection place. Why did you throw away the shutters? I asked him. Well, because the street is safer now, he answered me. Technically, nothing had changed. Rama asked him if he'd seen more policemen around. He hadn't. But the shopkeeper gestured toward the newly painted buildings on his street. And indeed, it was beauty that was giving people this feeling of being protected. Colors encourage us to put down roots, to stay and grow. And now that Toronto was colorful, its citizens wanted to make it their home. Ingrid kept reading up on evolutionary psychology and connecting it back to her aesthetics of joy. Now she could explain why children gravitate toward polka dots, why we light candles on our birthdays, why magic tricks delight us. She could even explain the strange appeal of googly eyes. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. In 2008, actor Christopher Walken lands the role of a lifetime. He's played Hamlet and Macbeth and he's won an Academy Award. He's creepy and funny and deep and actor's actor. Okay, so it's not really the role of a lifetime. It's a silly sketch on Saturday Night Live. 
And now, indoor gardening tips from a man who's very scared of plants. Hi. These are my cactuses. I put googly eyes on them. A lot of people are putting googly eyes on the cactuses nowadays. I think it's because cactuses are dangerous. Cactuses have prick lips that can stab you in your hands, or your throat, your face. So you need to know where you stand with them at all times. The only way to know where you stand with someone is to look into their eyes, right? Hence, googly eyes, still. A good rule of thumb is, don't turn your back on a cactus. Ingrid Fatelli sees the sketch and it makes total sense. Obviously, googly eyes don't make cacti less spiky, but they do make them look somehow friendlier. That's because googly eyes combine two main features of what Ingrid calls the play aesthetic, big eyes and round shapes. Studies show that sharp corners and spiky things make us tense. Round shapes put us at ease. Soft curves signal safety. They give us the green light for playtime. All of the shapes of childhood are round. So hula hoops and balloons and balls and spinning tops and carousels and merry-go-rounds. Like, all of childhood is round. And even, like, children themselves are round, right? They're, like, rounder <laughs> versions of adults. Like, And this is biological. They're rounder for a reason because they have a higher percentage of body fat and this is what makes them cute. And, you know, there's a whole there's a whole set of features called the baby schema that, that actually, like, makes them appear cute to us this way. Man or woman, parent or non-parent, we all have the same response. Chubby bodies, big heads, oversized eyes trigger our inner nurturer, even when they're stuck on a cactus. Ingrid thinks we can harness the power of cuteness. She tells Next Big Idea Club curator Adam Grant about a study where researchers flash images of baby animals at office workers and track their job performance before and after. I think it's interesting, this study out of Japan that shows that looking at cute things increases focus and concentration. Mm -hmm. It makes sense because cute things prompt a nurturing impulse. Nurturing is a focused act. And so the idea that when we look at, you know, these cute animals, that that might actually make us better at concentrating makes sense to me. That also reminds me of John Haidt's research showing that if you see pictures of puppies and kittens, you then make fewer errors on tasks which is sort of a acuteness leading to behavioral carefulness, which totally. is probably related to the, same the nurturing idea. Exactly, same thing, yeah. Is this why I keep getting student requests for a petting zoo on campus? <laughs> <laughs> that I don't know, but I think it's not a bad idea. We could experiment. We had a day at INEA where we had puppies come. They just came, like they, I don't know, they just arrived, like puppies arrived. <laughs> like these are our was, new designers. It was amazing. It we was value like, species diversity. I think it was, yeah. it, was, it was a part of like a, you know, I knew has all sorts of joy initiatives to sort of bring delight into the workplace and that was one and it was a really, um, it was just a wonderful day. I have this vision of you kind of sneaking joy into your projects that are supposed to have nothing to do with it. Like, IDEO is probably most famous for designing the mouse for Apple. Yeah. And I feel like if you could go in a time machine, you would have been like trying to convince Steve Jobs to smile, right, yeah. as you were building a mouse. <laughs> Did you have moments like that where, where joy wasn't part of a project, but then you found ways to work it in? I did. You know, it, it's funny because I think there were times, yes, and probably it's hard to talk about a lot of them because a lot of IDEO's projects are confidential, but I think 
it came in just how I approached everything. So it was just sort of a, a broader lens. I think sometimes I got matched with clients that are known for joy. So I got matched with Target, which worked out really well. You know, I love Target, and so it was great to work with them because joy is actually part of their purpose statement. And then also I got to work on some things that were totally blue sky that were joy-related. So, for example, we did a project to redesign Monday and try the to— The day? The day. The, the, the experience <laughs> you have on a Monday, right? Monday sucks and everyone hates Monday. And so we did a project to redesign Monday. So we looked at like the alarm clock and we made this little alarm clock that it laughs when it goes off. So it, it laughs with like a baby's laughter, which is one of the most infectiously <laughs> joyful sounds on earth. And it, it it rocks. So it's like we called it the tickle talk clock. You have to tickle it to turn it off. Um, so we did like really just like really fun things. So Wait, this is a job, yeah, you're saying? This is a okay, job. Yeah, this is a job. So, uh, so yeah, so we got to do some conceptual things like that, which were really a way to sort of explore how to bring joy into more purposefully into IDEO's environment. I want to get into to how to do that, because I think that there are at least uh, some people around here who feel like there is not enough joy at Penn. Uh, mm. Actually, R Richard Branson came last year, and that was his first observation. Is like, where's all the joy? Like, why, why doesn't anyone have any fun around here? Yeah. I was like, yeah, you definitely came to the wrong Ivy League school. <laughs> but uh, before before we get into some of that, I'm not letting you off the hook. Uh huh. You should have seen the room before the redesign. Oh yes, but right. Okay. What would you What would you do to bring more well, joy into this room? So I think um, the first thing to observe. So there's a little color but not a lot. So yeah, I would start with color. I think there's sort of some roundness in the way that the desks are arranged. Maybe I'm reaching. I think nature is a thing that seems to be missing, and it's missing from a lot of our man-made spaces. And I think the research on nature and the way that it influences well-being and functioning is pretty clear, that it helps restore our attention, it helps us concentrate and focus, and there's some research that even suggests that we're more generous when we're in the presence of indoor plants. So I think that, yeah, nature is, is definitely something I would look at bringing in here. You pointed out that we often have sort of the worst aesthetics and the, the least joy in the places we need it most. So yes. hospitals, schools, maybe prisons. Yes. Have you, have you been doing any work to try to bring more joy into those environments? And what does it look like? That is a good question. I'm actually getting more requests for that kind of work. And so I'm starting to look at different ways to do that. I just was in London and I met uh, this woman, Morag Myerskoff. She's an artist and she does a lot of installations in hospitals. And one is in the Sheffield Children's Hospital. It's this beautiful installation. And she said that when she first went in, that the nurses were really nice to her when she showed her design. She does really bold, colorful designs. When she first showed them, the nurses were really nice to her. And then they said, uh, to their bosses, they said, uh, "Please don't ever let that woman come back. She's going to she's going to kill the children. <laughs> like this is really bad." And but she went and she took the designs and she showed them to the parents and the kids. And like ninety two percent of the parents and kids wanted more color in the rooms. And so her designs were eventually implemented and, and they won over the nurses. And so it became a real success story. So I think it can be done. And my hope is, I, I think the question is which spaces to start with. But yeah, it's definitely something I'm looking at. Are there steps you've taken to bring more joy into your life since you started becoming an expert on this topic? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm still learning, actually. Expert's a funny word to use because I, I still feel like I'm learning. But yeah, absolutely. 
I've definitely changed the way that my house is decorated and bringing in plants. I know I keep talking about plants, but plants probably were one of the most transformative things because I spent, you know, my 20s very nomadic. I moved around a lot. I moved apartments a lot. And I sort of thought, okay, plants isn't something that I can have. And when I actually finally realized, oh, I, I'm not moving around all the time. I can take care. I can take care of a plant. I probably can't take care of a pet, but I can definitely take care of like a succulent, you know, um, and so, I think. I can keep this thing alive. And so I started bringing in more and more. And now it's almost like an addiction. Like I definitely have, like I sort of propagate them, I, you know. But it does change the quality of indoor space to have something that moves, something that's alive, something that's green. She also took a cue from Eddie Rama and livened up her apartment with color. My husband and I painted a bench that we have in our entryway, Kelly Green. It's like bright Kelly Green. It's an old bench. We found it at a flea market and we painted it bright green. And I will tell you, every time I walk into the house, this gives me a feeling of joy. So recent research out of University of Miami, University of South Carolina shows that people, we tend to believe that things with bold colors and patterns, that we will get tired of them more quickly. And it has to do with the fact that they sort of create a higher level of arousal, and we think that that is going to irritate us over time. When it, in fact, the reverse is true, that we actually become more tired of the things that have sort of limited visual appeal that are sort of more dull and drab. And so I think some of this is just learning actually to circumvent our own prediction biases that like we become attracted to this thing because we think it's nice and neutral and it will last for a really long time. But in fact, we get bored of it and we shy away from certain things that feel too bold, like the Kelly Green bench or whatever it is. And then actually those things grow on us over time. I wear a lot more color than I used to. Colorful shoes. I paint my nails in rainbow colors because when I'm sitting at the keyboard and I have a long day of work and a long day of email, it's actually really nice to see something <laughs> colorful. I, I can't control, I can't always control my environment, but I actually can control what's on me and what's with me. I also notice that it changes the way people react to me. So, you know, you can start little ripple effects based on what you're wearing. I'm curious about the, the colorful dress step. Mm -hmm. Are, do you ever feel like people take you less seriously or do people ever come concerned that they're going to be you know, seen as unprofessional or Pollyanna? Oh, totally. I have so many people on my Instagram who like will comment on this when I talk about this because so many people have told me that they feel like they have been, you know, told that, for example, when they buy things, accessories for themselves, people are like, is that for your child? And they'll say, no, actually, that's for me. Um, and that they feel really dismissed. Ingrid thinks Western society suffers from chromophobia, a fear of color. It's not that we don't recognize the joy of color. We're suspicious of bright colors because they bring us joy. We belong to a cultural tradition that values self-restraint. In Europe and North America, we signal our respectability by draping our houses and ourselves in a neutral palette. Outfit by outfit, room by room, we banish happy colors before anyone can accuse us of being self-indulgent. But deep down, we still know joy when we see it. Ingrid thinks that each of us has an inner joy detector. Tuning into it requires us to tune out our ideas about good taste. It requires us to follow our instincts instead of decor trends. And it requires us to stand up to an influential school of design that, more than any other, is out to kill our joy. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, 
and he shared about his struggles building up financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. It's Ingrid's first year at the Pratt School of Design in New York. And every day she finds herself gazing at a photo her studio mate has pinned above her desk. It's just a black and white photo of a gravy boat, but it's stunning. Its curves are organic, sensual. The boat's handle looks like two leaves unfurling towards each other and then casually kissing. It's made of porcelain, but it looks alive, like it could change and grow at any moment. Ingrid doesn't know she's looking at a design classic. Later, she'll learn that the gravy boat was the work of Eva Zeisel, an icon of mid-century design and one of its rare female designers. Zeisel was unusual in other ways, too. The prevailing school of modernism celebrated angles, but she embraced curves. Modernism pushed away sentiment, but Zeisel leaned into emotion. She took so much joy in giving life to her designs, she was still hard at work in 2010 at the age of 104. Is it easier to convey feelings through a curve? Yeah. Zeisel's hand traces two shapes in the air. Didn't you see the difference? I did. Straight line is giving you information. Information. Mm -hmm. And the curvy line is giving you feelings? Yeah. Zeisel's work taps into what Ingrid Fatelli calls the renewal aesthetic which connects us to nature's cycles. Zeisel's curves aren't just any curves, they're compound curves and S-curves, curves that mimic living things. Her designs undulate like young ferns and blooming flowers. For Ingrid, Zeisel becomes a personal hero. She didn't pay attention to trends, she listened to what gave her joy, and she passed that joy along to others. So my definition of aesthetics is that aesthetics are just information we receive through the senses. And that's a little bit different from the way that people who are sort of in the field of philosophy or art would define it. I think um, we tend to layer a lot of meaning onto it, but the original like root definition of aesthetics is that it, it relates to our sensory experience of the world. And so to me, we are all able to, we all have sort of an, a set of innate faculties for having like rich aesthetic experiences. I think what happened over time is that we've become disconnected from, from our intuition around that because we've been told that certain things have to be a certain way. I think modernism was really a 
devastating factor in this, right? It told us that we should build boxes, you know, out of concrete and, uh, and glass and steel. And it sort of really cut us off from our own natural aesthetic proclivities. And it's not surprising because modernism was an aesthetic that was all about machines. It was all about like a mechanistic, ahistorical, atemporal, like taking architecture out of time, taking it out of, out of history. And so it makes sense, right, that now that we live in a world that's been tinged by modernism and that that is still the sort of aesthetic that is considered like right by architects, by the avant-garde, like that is sort of what is considered sophisticated. So I think we've really been cut off from our own aesthetic intuitions. And a lot of my work is really about trying to reconnect us with this and say, you know what, this is just a basic human capability. We all have the ability to understand what feels good aesthetically and the way that we know is through our emotions. That aesthetics are intrinsically connected to emotions, that our sensory experience of the world is intrinsically connected to our emotions, and that is how we should be making design and aesthetic decisions as opposed to based on sort of standards of taste. Ingrid encourages something she calls joy spotting, to bring our tastes and our emotions back in alignment. She developed the practice while working on her book. It's simple. Pay attention to the moments when we smile or laugh and note what's happening around us. What are the sounds? What are the colors? And after a while, we'll start to notice trends and learn which of the aesthetics of joy we respond to. What do you say to the, the people? It, it almost sounds like there's some people in every culture who are kind of like the dementors from Harry Potter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> They're just they like are. determined to suck all the joy totally. out of everyone's yeah. attire. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you say to people who take that stance? Um... What do I say to them? I mean, to some extent, it's hard to convince people. I think more I focus on making things available so that when people might want, you know, a glimpse of a different way of doing things, the information is there for them. But I do talk about the connection to performance, the connection to well-being. You know, that's one way in. It just, it tends to be a mindset shift, Mm-hmm. that has to happen. And so I had a, a woman who contacted me after one of my talks and she told me that uh, when she was first, um, uh, when she, she she had to be dragged to my talk, she didn't want to come. And, it's always a good start. Yeah, right. Yeah. She didn't want to come. She considered herself not a happy person, not a joyful person. She And her way of seeing the world was that there are joyful people and they're not joyful people. And I'm just unfortunately not one. And that's not going to be my lot in life. And she said that when I talked about joy spotting, which is the idea of like going out into the world and it's kind of like a mindfulness exercise, but it's specifically focused on spotting joy in your surroundings, seeing things, noticing things that bring you a feeling of joy. When I talked about that, she said, well, it's free and it's easy and no one has to know I'm doing it. And so she said, okay, I'll try it. You know, that was what she told herself. And then she did it. And she said, actually, I did see it. I did see joy. And then I started seeing more of it. So for her, it was actually, you know, I didn't even need to have the conversation with her because I was having it sort of at, at large scale. But that took root by having her try something. That makes me curious about cross-cultural reactions to joy. So there's a bunch of research suggesting that if you look at ideal emotions, right? Ideal emotions in the US are around joy and exuberance. But if you go to most Southeast Asian cultures, people are much more interested in calm and Mm -hmm. peacefulness and Mm -hmm. tranquility. I... I know what you mean about Southeast Asia. What's an interesting conversation I had in Japan, didn't make it into the book, but it was an interesting conversation I had in Japan, was 
I actually was talking to an architect about this idea of calm and this idea of joy. And I was like, is it more calm or is it more joy? And he's like, it's interesting that you think that those two things are opposed. And I thought that was really interesting, right? So that actually that there might be a, a more expansive definition of joy that isn't that you can find serenity and and delight and that those two things might be overlapping so that there might be different. I, I often think about it as like different emotional territories that intersect with each other and they intersect in different ways. <laughs> but this idea that the interpretation that we want people to be happy all the time, I actually think is something I'm trying to fight against because I believe that joy is not a state of being. It is an emotion. And the whole idea of this work is just that we feel it a little more often and that we also should feel all the other range of our emotions too. We should feel the lows. We should really acknowledge the lows because I don't think we will feel, I don't think we feel true joy if we don't feel true sorrow as well when we experience it. And so for me, it's more about exploring the full range of our emotions and expanding that. What surprised you the most that you've learned about joy? Oh my God, so many things. I mean, maybe this thing that I was sort of saying about the depth, like that the amplitude of our joy is, I think, also connected to the amplitude of our ability to feel sorrow. And that really what we should be striving for is not constant happiness, but a rich emotional life. And maybe that in some way, all of this research on joy has actually deepened my ability to feel the hard things in life, that I've actually just become more emotionally aware as a person. And I think that just fundamentally the physiological nature of emotions, when you understand that, I think you can also understand when things start to deceive you. For example, like that having too much caffeine in a day can make you so anxious, right? Like that's sort of like a backwards relationship sometimes that your body can start to have responses that feel like emotions that aren't actually there. Mm. So understanding the, like understanding how physical it all is, then it makes perfect sense why your environment would have an effect on you because your environment is having an effect on your senses. Your senses are having an effect on your physiology and, and all of that is turning into sort of these emotional responses in your brain. So yeah, when I first, I, I think it gives the lie to the idea that emotions are this thing that's all in your head. You know, it's actually in your head and your body. It's, it's a full body experience. Mm -hmm. So Ingrid, it's been, uh, dare I say, a joy to have you here today. Uh, I, uh, I think the, the thing that I love most about your work is that it really speaks for itself in the sense that whenever I have somebody who's a little bit curmudgeonly on, about the topic, all I have to do is say, I dare you to read Joyful and not feel joy. And so far, no one has been able to pull it off. Uh, so, do you know they've read it? Um, I've actually gotten feedback from people who are like, damn it. <laughs> Um, so I think, uh, I think it's, it's really exciting to learn about joy from someone who actually brings more of it into the world, and I think we could all use more of that. Thank you for joining us today. If you have thoughts about joy or any of the ideas we discuss on this podcast, join me, Ingrid Fatelli, and other authors featured on this podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. Use promo code PODCAST to get 10% off the cost of a subscription. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. Special thanks this week to Ingrid Fatelli. Her book, Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness, is available everywhere books are sold. 
Thanks also to Next Big Idea Club curator Adam Grant, who conducted the interview. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Natalie Shisha. Sound design is by Jake Gorski. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producers are Emma Cortland and Michael Kopnot. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.